0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we have on Tarun, the founder of Gauntlet and Robot Ventures. He's someone who I think really needs no introduction. Gauntlet's one of the original companies building four protocols and really at the tip of the spear for governance-led and governance-based products. Aside from that, he's also a prolific researcher, tweeter, has a lot of interesting and controversial thoughts on a variety of topics. So We'll also get into some of those details as well, but really excited to have him on. So Tarun, welcome to this podcast. Hey, excited to be on. I love listening to it, and I think
1: at one point, the same way that Zero Knowledge podcast was sort of where I helped co-host a bunch, was sort of a niche place where a few nerds would like congregate. I kind of feel like you guys have figured out how to make that for DAOs,
0: so that's awesome. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think the intent is definitely to focus hopefully on depth and niche areas and and go deeper rather than, than cover everything. Just to get started, I think people have heard of Gauntlet and listeners of this podcast. I've spoken about Gauntlet many times and all the work you guys do around risk analysis and helping any protocols with any kind of risk. Would love to hear a bit more about the journey to building Gauntlet. I don't think you've spoken much publicly about just how Gauntlet started and how the journey since foundation has come.
1: I think the place to start is I first sort of realized or heard about cryptocurrencies in 2011. I was working at a place called D.E. Char Research and we were building ASICs, so application-specific integrated circuits. That's kind of custom hardware. And basically the gist of it was that we were taping out a chip. And at that time, this was pre sort of self-driving cars and a lot of ai applications really building custom chips so there were not really many people who were building chips and so we kind of expected when we went to a supplier and gave them an order they would actually service it and give it back in a short amount of time and basically we actually had this 25 million dollar chip order that the supplier ghosted us on and so you know they took 25 million bucks and they sort of ghosted us for a while And then they came back like six months later and they're like, hey, we'll give you a 10% discount. And of course, to us who are building this like $100 million chip, we were like, fuck you. Like you sent our timelines back six months. That's worth a lot more than the 10%. At the very least, you owe us an explanation. And basically, the explanation was, hey, look, there's these people building these SHA-256 hashers in hardware And I think we think they're doing this Bitcoin thing. In 2011, That was just like, what? I thought that was just all the scammers and drug dealers. The only people I knew (laughs) who I guess were really using Bitcoin at the time were like people like Xerox b one And it was sort of this weird thing where I was like, what? People are building hardware for this? This can't be real. Like people who are building hardware usually are sort of like basically spending hundreds of millions of dollars. They have sort of like a long-term objective. They actually are have this thing, this network, who even knows why it works? The original white paper has all these math mistakes. Like how could this thing work? And effectively what happened was I was like, all right, I'm just going to mine this thing. If people are going to try to make hardware for it, like there's clearly some money coming to it. So I mined a bunch of Bitcoin and I sold it all at the bottom in 2013, like a true genius. And basically I was like, oh, this thing, seems like a scam. I'm not really going to pay attention. And in 2014, 2015, that was when the first real sort of academic papers started to come out that really, really solidified why cryptocurrencies work. And at a really like 10,000 foot level, I'll maybe give a slight explanation of what that is and why that was something that was important to me, which is in sort of distributed databases and distributed systems, there sort of has been this theorem for a very long time called the CAP theorem. And the CAP theorem stands for consistency, availability, and partition resistance. Effectively, the CAP theorem gives three properties that you want out of a distributed database. The first consistency means that if I send a transaction, so I say I send you, Derek, five Derek coin, then after an hour, that transaction better still be there. After some amount of time, all nodes in the network agree that Tarun paid Derek some Derek coin. The second is availability. Availability means I can keep accepting transactions. So I can send a transaction at any time and the network will pick it up and it doesn't have downtime. It's sort of a notion of like, what does it mean to have downtime or not downtime? And the last is partition resistance. So partition resistance in a more practical sense would be as if China, the great firewall of China, was somehow able to block every single transaction that looked like, a cryptocurrency transaction. Now, of course, in practice, that's actually very unreasonable. There are lots of ways of getting around such efforts, but from a purely theoretical lens, think of it as China separates itself from the rest of the world's internet. And partition resistance Sorry, corresponds to if that happened, if the Chinese government did that, and then all of a sudden, there was a revolution, and then the Chinese government was overthrown, and then all of a sudden, the Chinese internet connected back to the rest of the world, they would be able to catch up their databases would be able to eventually become consistent with the rest of the world. So those are sort of three fundamental properties of databases. And I'd worked at this place with all these like very famous professors, some Turing Prize winners, stuff like that. They were all like, oh, crypto is a scam because the CAP theorem exists and it clearly violates CAP theorem. This person who wrote this paper can't add two Poisson random variables correctly, which is true. The Satoshi paper has all these sort of basics. You can tell it's someone who had not quite studied a lot of networking stuff very carefully. That was why in the applied research world and academic world, people kind of use a scam until 2014 and 2015. And so in 2014 and 2015, I think the researchers who really, really kind of figured out that, hey, this thing isn't a scam and it's not violating the cap theorem. It's just doing something very weird. Satoshi was just bad at math and like wrote the wrong thing. That sort of was the thing that around the era really convinced me that, hey, this thing is real, I should pay attention to it again. And I think, realistically, the thing that got me actually interested was reading about proof of stake, and not really smart contracts at that time, because I kind of didn't totally understand why smart contracts would be that interesting in 2016. But I had basically run into a lot of research on proof of stake. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. You're using all these cryptographic techniques to reduce the energy usage, but you're making this weird financial asset in the process. What is that financial asset? What does it feel like? How does it act? You could think of it as I was a kid who found some Play-Doh and I was like trying to make some object out of it because it was something where cryptographers describing these assets didn't really describe it the way that people who traded or used financial assets would describe them. And so at that time, I was also working in high frequency trading. So I was like, oh, like, how is this similar to certain derivative assets that we trade all the time? Because, like, there's something about it that looks like that. And that's missing from all of these academic papers from Vitalik, from Sylvia Macaulay when Algorand came out, from basically everyone who was writing all this proof of stake stuff in 2016 and Cosmos and stuff like that. And that just led me down this crazy rabbit hole of like, I'm going to try to see if I can do some attacks against these assets that look like trading strategies. Like they look like I was trading, breaking the Bank of England's back in the derivatives market, which that type of stuff does happen. So sorry, the breaking the Bank of England's back is a reference to when George Soros sort of did this fantastic trade that sort of broke the British pound and kind of caused effectively this like crisis in Europe. And this is sort of, before stable coins, but I was sort of like proof of stake could have the same type of dynamics. So I was just basically writing simulation tools that were sort of, initially they were sort of inspired by like a hybrid of what I worked on in trading and also in a DSHR research. Once I started reading blockchain code, there were like just a lot of differences, but I tried to figure out what the like middle ground of all three places were. And I was just doing that for fun. And by the end of 2017, I had found some kind of like, not super complicated, but relatively simple to execute attacks. And I had gone to a bunch of people who had started L1s. And I said, hey, like, do you guys know that like you have this financial attack that could happen where your network is secure up to 33% of the stake being malicious, but 33% of what? if the X that 33% is multiplied by goes down really fast, then it becomes easy to take over the network because 33% of a billion dollars is a lot more than 33% of $10. And I think people actually, once the fervor of 2017, once people stopped being so crazy about issuing tokens and just thinking about how to pump SAFTS and stuff like that, they started being like, oh shit, actually we have to build this thing. And oh fuck, actually these attacks actually could work. And, oh, yeah, exchanges aren't our friends, so they might execute them against us. A lot of the same narrative that we see with StakedEath, actually, but this was sort of pre that existing. That led me down this rabbit hole where I was like, okay, and these people are like, hey, do you want to work for us? And I was like, no, not really. You guys all seem a little sketchy. I'd come from kind of this environment of all these people who had PhDs. And you know, I find these people who are kind of like engineers with like sort of half-baked ideas that's unclear if they worked, but they're able to raise a lot of money as like, a little bit unsavory at that time. And so I consulted, and then that sort of is what turned into Gauntlet. But I met my co-founder, Ray, who a shame not as many people know who he is, but he's an awesome person. He also worked on simulation stuff for a decade before on self-driving cars at Uber, and then also in trading before that. And we were both just like, this is crazy. These people are launching all these systems with no statistical testing, they're just kind of like YOLO, like, let's hope it works and like not thinking about these kind of attacks. And I think our main idea in the beginning was really like, hey, how do we make it so that these crypto devs who don't want to learn statistics can actually run these types of tests? And we actually thought it'd be more like a CI tool, a little bit like how the way Sertora's business kind of evolved into being a CI tool for formal verification. So that's the Genesis story. Sorry, I know that was like a... Very long rant, but...
0: <laughs> no, I think it's very helpful context for listeners. I think just to hear the natural progression of both your background, just knowing how Gauntlet and how your work has evolved. I remember reading and looking at Gauntlet, I think the first time I heard about you guys was maybe 2018. And yeah, at the time, like it was pretty wonky in the sense that there really wasn't meaningful economic... Behavior happening on chain, outside of pure peer-to-peer transactions, you could maybe argue MakerDAO at the time had had some usage and like Dai existed. But correct me if I'm wrong, but it was it was pretty much just L1s at the time that people were focused on, and DeFi really wasn't a thing. So obviously, that's where you guys are focused mostly on now. But just curious, like, what was it like back then? I think when we started, we Definitely
1: had trouble convincing people this was a problem. And I think I think a lot of people saw that, hey, this would be a problem at some point, but they were just more focused on this fact that, oh, well, these people haven't even like built anything. <laughs> so like well, maybe we should just like fund things that are like actually going to run first before trying to do the analysis part. We were definitely lucky we fundraised sort of right. Basically what happened actually was I was Doing this consulting for L1s, and then at some point I was like, wait, I-, I could like make more money doing this than doing my job. So, like, why don't I just do that? I was already interested in doing it for fun. So <laughs> basically, then at some point, Libra, before they even launched and announced and stuff like that, it was spring twenty eighteen, I wanna say. They sort of like tried to acquire my one person thing. They were just basically acquiring a ton of people at that time. Any company that was like had some crypto looking thing that could make sense for what they're working on. And that was when I was like, all right, if big companies are coming in, ironically, this was the wrong logic, but right conclusion. But I was basically like, okay, if big companies are coming in. There's got to be a way to sell these types of products. They are not naive enough to ignore the fact that like, they have to have these testing tools. And like in machine learning, that's like a big area of stuff of like managing your production, ML pipelines, monitoring them debugging them, stuff like that. There's like tons of companies that exist, a lot of them unicorns for that type of stuff. And so I was like, okay, if Facebook's coming, someone will finally believe that this is like a product that will take a while, but it's a product and not a service. It's not just like some consulting thing. Like you could actually like automate a lot of these testing. That is sort of what spurned us into this. And at that time, it was really just L1s. The L1s kind of got it, but like none of them really were Willing to make a lot of changes. And one of the early learnings we had from working with L1s and like writing a lot of L1 simulation, the stuff I wrote for fun was a bunch of L1 simulation C. And it was sort of like, oh, actually, the L1s want this like really hard bespoke thing for each of them. And they also are just unwilling to use governance. I'm sure there are listeners of this podcast who are working at L1s who are like, No, fuck you. You're an asshole. We love using governance. And it's like, yeah, maybe you do a little bit now after 2021 was crazy. But like, that was just not at all true in 2018. Everyone was so afraid of doing anything with governance. The investors were like, we're not voting. Like, we don't know how to vote. We don't want to put our coins anywhere near a smart contract. The custodians were like, smart contracts. How dare you? We're never supporting them. (laughs) It was a weird world. It's a weird world when you think about it now. And like, I think sometimes if you... Are kind of newer to space and you didn't see the world at that time, it was actually just really hard to participate in these networks. Like, even if you really wanted to and you were like a big fund, you basically couldn't vote in anything because your LP mandate would be like, absolutely, coins can only sit at Anchorage or Coinbase. There was just a lot of friction to using governance. Basically, it was like, okay, well, governance is the only way to set parameters and make these quantitative changes to these protocols. But yet no one wants to actually do it in spite of the fact that they've sold these tokens under the pretense that it will do that. Because a lot of the L1 fundraisers of that time were, oh, we're ETH plus governance. And it was like, oh, we're ETH plus governance, except no one does governance. Like no one actually fucking votes in these things.
0: Tezos, Polkadot, those are the ones that come top to mind. Not to say that anyone know,
1: participates today. Tezos, Polkadot, Definity, Hashgraph—all of them had some flavor of governance. Whether it was Liquid Democracy or whether it was like some other thing, that they all had some. Some one of their main things was Ethereum sucks because EIP process isn't real governance, and that was like kind of at the bedrock of a lot of the claims at that time.
0: EOS as well. That was another.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, but EOS's governance was. <laughs> It's a great case study for
0: some future business school class. I honestly haven't thought about EOS governance in years, but I remember there being sort of, the design was having 21 validators and there immediately in the first few months were cases of like leaked documents showing them like coordinating and forming cartels around things. And I just remember there being a lot of drama. It was like the original DeFi on-chain drama.
1: Yeah, and at that time... The only smart contracts that existed, so we really did start by consulting with a lot of layer ones and definitely learned a lot doing that. And they have a hard job, if we're going to be honest, running a layer one as a developer or as a person working on it, not on the BD side. I mean, the BD side is hard too, but in a different way. But the dev side, I feel like is way more brutal than like almost any other engineering thing. Any Silicon Valley engineer who's like, oh, yeah, I did like 20 on calls at Google has yeah. never had to live through like losing $100 million by accident type of bug. That is just like, the, yeah, they lost $100 million, but you can't even attribute who did it. Whereas like bridge hack, you can just go look at the git commit and see who <laughs> caused the issue. So long story short, we learned a lot from ones. Definitely thankful for that opportunity. But I think at some point we were like, this is like just not going to be a product With layer ones. One of the more interesting things was at that time, the only smart contract applications that existed really were the following three categories. Number one, Ethereum Ponzi scheme. So I don't know if any of your listeners who are around then may remember this thing called Plus Token, which had like $2 billion of Ethereum in it. It was a total crazy Ponzi scheme. And there's actually a great chain analysis report from that time about plus token and like I think they actually did end up arresting the people who, who were running it but I think it was like targeting like Chinese pensioners the second class of thing were like the justin Sun gambling games so like Tron actually had a f- ton of transaction volume mainly because Tron and binance were like attached at the hip at that time and binance was growing like crazy then while everything else was crashing and basically binance made it easy for you to play things like Tron bet which was literally just like roulette on chain. Half of those games were gerrymandered. The random number generator wasn't very good. And people figured out how to just like force the random numbers to not be so random and win most of those games. The people who are playing those like in earnest on their phone were definitely getting eaten up by the sharks who are like writing the contract code to make it easy to take advantage of them. Both of those are not very good. Like, hey, we want to be like quantitative risk to make sure that people are safe customers, as you can imagine. And the third type of thing was like, EOS had all sorts of like dog shit DEXs that didn't work. And they were just like the natural lesson. And like, I think, especially people from normal finance who were like super, super Solana maxi because of its support for order books, learned this the hard way. But every single time there's like a new chain that gets a lot of developer attention for a, a short amount of time. There is a... Thing It's like, oh, we're going to build an order book on-chain. And basically, none of them ever really work. And the EOS ones were particularly abhorrent. I think the Solana ones are significantly better. And I actually think Solana has a real developer community, unlike EOS, which was like 100% mercenary. But I would say like EOS at that time definitely had that. Did have a lot of applications. So as you can imagine from the description of those three things, none of those are exactly products where risk management matters. Or people care about understanding their assets, understanding sort of like the financials of these assets.
0: So we're in 2019, early 2020. We're deep in the bear market. There's sort of this, you could almost call this like L1 trough of disillusionment. DeFi hadn't really emerged yet. And can you walk us through like what changed? How did this all change? What happened in DeFi summer? And sort of why did you guys end up leading hard into, into DeFi?
1: I also had the good fortune of being at this kind of amazing co-working space, shared office in New York that was at that time run by this fund called Distributed Global. I think I met you there a few times. It was sort of the epicenter of crypto in New York. So at that time, and I'm a notorious hater of San Francisco, so anytime I can get to take a tiny pot shot, I will... But like at that time, everyone was like, oh, like you should be an SF. Crypto's an SF. Who the fuck would be in New York? What a shithole for doing crypto stuff. And us people who are here outside of consensus were kind of like all basically like conglomerated at this office that this venture fund just gave away for free. Like anyone could work there for free. And it was amazing. And being there, let me see, have a ton of exposure to projects, because basically two to three times a week, there'd be someone giving a talk about their project and our office, I would just walk outside of of my office and just go listen to some random talk. And what I saw there was interesting was, there were the Bitcoin and lightning meetups which had basically no talk about developers or building technology, and it was mainly about how everything was a scam and Lightning is going to save everything. And then there was sort of the alt, the I raised in an ICO for X set of people. So like Arweave was in our office, Hashgraph, Tezos, and Polkadot. And then there was the we're really, really ETH Maxi and we're going to have these very technical conversations about things we're working on and details. And I sort of noticed that like the communities had three very different bents. One was get rich quick, which was the Bitcoin side. One was, we're drowning. We raised all this ICO money. We can't even get the basics of our node to run. And the other was like, hey, we have this network that's working. And people are kind of down on it, but we're really focused on improving it and improving the analytics of it, improving the understanding of how you can build applications on it. And Maker was oftentimes at this office. Listening to Maker's talks gave me a lot more faith that there was sort of actually something very, very real underlying these systems and like the fact that Maker was able to survive. And also the fact that they were really talking about this concept of like, hey, we want to move from single collateral die, just ETH, to multi-collateral, which obviously in the ETH community is a big source of consternation, but they were really committed to doing it. And they were really committed to doing it safely for, and a lot of VCs will say this as sort of a glib thing to whatever, I'm not saying it sarcastically, for the next billion users. They were actually caring about How do we stress test our things? How do we change these parameters? What parameters do we pick? And the idea that this community actually cared about it was probably the thing that really attracted me to DeFi probably in February, March of 2019. But I also had the fortune, luckily, of being in that office in November 2018 when Maker and Hayden announced the ETH Dai pool in Uniswap. Because at that time... Maker had had a ton of liquidity issues. So no centralized exchange was willing to list MKR. In the current days where Coinbase lists every shitcoin under the sun, it's very hard to remember that they basically did not do that, they did not list anything. And for DAI, for the system to work, for it to have the arbitrage loop, for it to have this safe behavior, you really, really needed an AMM first. And they tried to make one, OASIS, as an RFQ system, which... It did actually do its job, but Maker couldn't attract enough arbitrageurs, couldn't attract enough liquidity. And it was just part of the reason was like to use Oasis. It was a very active type of decentralized exchange. You had to trade a lot. You had to write a bot. You've already limited the set of people who have a bunch of ETH because a lot of them are not technically sophisticated. They just happen to buy in the presale or happen to buy during 2017. They know how to use a wallet, but they're not able to write sort of a trading bot. And so... The beauty of Uniswap was that it disintermediated the need to write an ARB bot yourself. And the fact, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this shit shouldn't work. I basically was like, there's like no way that Uniswap should really be able to achieve this because the LPs are just going to have tons of adverse selection and they're going to lose all their money. And what we saw in the Eat Die pool, which is one of the highest earning pools in history, was that A... There's a lot of people who have assets sitting around passively who would love some yield on them. B, if you can make a system that relies on arbitrage, which makes it decentralized, but doesn't need a ton of arbitrage, and it's easy to compute the arbitrage, it will do really well. And so those things by basically May 2019, I was like, okay, I see this thing working. It like somehow hit $10 million in the eat-dide pool. And it came from this mechanistic sort of statistical reason. And that made me be like, all right, we're just going to move to DeFi stuff because everything is moving 100 times faster. People actually care about the end user of their product not being just an investor. And they care about risk and optimizing their system because there is literal cost to it and literal sustainability directed in it. And like you would think that would be true for proof of stake, but I think it's just Again, people are just super, super risk averse. People just don't want to do anything on chain because like, of course, there's tons of hacks and there's lots of reasons you could, you could argue against them. So basically, that was when my co-founder and I we were like, we're going to pivot to just doing DeFi stuff. And it's going to be very consulting in the beginning. It's going to because like no one has ever done this notion of analysis for these things, which just do look quite different. The math is not exactly the same in a lot of ways relative to normal finance. And I think this is something that a lot of the people I saw last year, especially a lot of people I worked with in high frequency trading or in other fields, who came into defi and were like, "Oh yeah, like we're just going to like copy whatever we have in tradfi and just literally implement it directly and we're going to raise at a $100 million valuation, it's going to work." And they all failed for the most part. I mean, maybe I'm sure some of them will be ave, someone will be ave from this like last cycle who will survive through the bear and make like a really well-used product. But a lot of them will fail or fail because A, the modeling and the risk analysis for these systems is completely different. So you can't just translate analysis you've done in TradFi and be like, oh, this model already has the analysis in it, so I'm just going to use it on chain and it's going to work. That was sort of the thing that we would realized from simulating. And one of the things we'd realized more directly, and we'd seen other people try to do simulations, but most of them had focused on doing sort of high-level approximate simulation, very approximate, where you say, okay, well, I'm going to try to like implement some high-level mathematical model that doesn't exactly match what the code is doing. And I'm going to try to say something about Uniswap. We had observed very carefully from like analyzing and indexing data, and at that time, no one was really doing that, that there were some very minute differences in how the math, for this type of risk modeling differs when you run these models against the real contract code versus running it against a sort of high level model and in tradfi only in high frequency trading do you have the same thing where like your models actually diverge dramatically whether you are really really precise about every single little detail how every packet arrives like what's the distribution of packet arrival times what do you project that the exchanges Latency distribution looks like, dot, 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 stuff like that, versus like the majority of sort of asset management type of stuff where you're like, ah, we can't really predict that much about the market. We're just going to try to predict our transaction costs and then TWAP into things and rebalance our $10 billion portfolio. So a lot of people were trying to do sort of the ladder for DeFi risk. And that was where we were like, at that time, realizing by a lot of people, I mean three people, Maker, Alex Evans. Uh, and of course, Alex and I just became really good friends and wrote a lot of research together because of that. But that was when we are like, oh, actually, there are these nuanced differences and they're contributing to why Uniswap is working. And that just led us down this rabbit hole of like, oh, wow, there's so much level of detail and granularity here. And also, no one has figured out the modeling for it because it, it is just fundamentally different than TradFi, which... Again, like I said, last year we just saw the ICO boom, a ton of people come in and be like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna take X I know from outside and apply it, which doesn't work. But yeah, so we spent a lot of time on that. And the thing I think that really propelled us was we were working with Compound and basically figured out a lot of sort of the core methodology and frameworks for how to think about modeling liquidations in a decentralized world. And that's something that doesn't exist at all in traditional finance. Part of the reason for that is when you are a person who takes a loan out at a normal bank, if you default on the loan, it's the bank's job to liquidate you. And they have all the incentive in the world to do it because it's the only way that they get their money back or some amount of their money back. In the decentralized world, it's actually very tricky because you want to make this contest out of allowing anyone to liquidate bad debt. So you somehow have to incentivize them. You have to pay them. But if you pay them too much, then it's the same as if you just caused a loss to the lenders. Because now if I have to pay 70% of the loan value as an incentive, then obviously the lenders are losing that. There's no free lunch. So there's kind of this interesting thing where people were sort of building these protocols, but making them quite conservative in the beginning. And that was when we were running the simulations. We were like, oh, okay, there's actually this very clear parameter optimization problem here. There's some similarity to some of the parameter optimization you would do in machine learning or in trading. But there's also a lot of differences because you have to model all these users who are not guaranteed to have perfect execution. When you're in traditional finance and you're modeling like a loan going under, you just assume the bank always clears it and that they always liquidate it. And like, obviously... Financial crisis showed that, hey, sometimes I can't. But almost everyone builds that in as an assumption. Whereas in DeFi, you absolutely cannot build in such assumptions. And really, really understanding how that changes the math. And like that was the rabbit hole I went down on the research side, was kind of how we picked ourselves up from our bootstraps. And then I think after Black Thursday and in March 2020 people had a much bigger understanding that like, hey, this was important. And that was sort of a long rant, but that's sort of, I would say, how we went from much more on the like L1 consulting to, oh, this is like a repeatable parameter optimization problem that you can run continuously.
0: No, really helpful, again, context, I think, for your journey and transition. And I think how your thinking evolved over time to where Gauntlet sits today, which is from my understanding, mostly working with various DeFi protocols that have all of these considerations that you've talked about. It's like much more relevant, much more top of mind for them directly. I guess one question is just to double click on DeFi, since we're focused on it. I think it's fair to say right now that we're in that same trough of of disillusionment, at least for some stakeholders, for some investors, for some users. There's a handful of protocols working well without incentives, but the vast overwhelming majority of DeFi startups have shown that they're not sustainable without huge amounts of emissions, without help from external forces. We have a handful of products that are really working really well, Uniswap, Aave, Compound. How do you feel about the state of DeFi right now? What things excite you? What concerns, if any, do you have? Do you even agree with my premise that we're in a trough? You don't have to.
1: I think we're in a trough of investor disillusionment. I'm not convinced we're in a trough of real user disillusionment. The random farming funds and whatever, they all hopefully got washed out by the craziness of the last year and a half. But I generally think that I agree the incentives piece is obviously one of our products is actually incentive optimization to like help people Figure out how to distribute their incentives to match their goals rather than strictly to attract renegade capital. And I think the real usage, the real, real usage is still around. And I think, in the sense of like Uniswap, in the sense of what you're seeing, I think in Aave, there's actually like net new users who are actual power users, which is kind of crazy. The other place that there's actual real new users and Something I don't understand because I just don't know these people, and they're probably just not in the U.S., which is why is Salon NFT stuff. I don't think those are fake users, which is crazy to me. I would have not believed that like three months ago. If you punched me, I would have been like, still not going to say like, yeah, Salon
0: NFT users are real. I'll be honest, I did not expect you to say that. <laughs> it's caught it me very off guard. But it's true. That's why we had this
1: wallet hack actually was worse than expected because like those people were like the real Magic Eden users, which is crazy to me. Real Magic Eden users who like bought an NFT and just forgot to like switch, upgrade their wallet. I guess the state of DeFi, right now we have the mechanisms that worked and people will build off of them in the same way that, oh, what was the mechanism that worked in 2017? It was ETH. Pretty much the only thing like that actually ran consistently from then. Because like most of the layer ones started around then, started from then to the last cycle. And I basically think right now, the DeFi protocols are things to be built on top of. And the things that will be built on top of are going to be things for NFTs, things for bridging real world assets in some ways. I know Maker has a particular approach. I suspect there will be other approaches. And I basically think we're in this Thing where we washed out most of the froth of it. But whoever is left is actually like the real thing to be building for. And that's where we're going to see kind of like a lot of interesting stuff happen.
0: Makes a ton of sense. And another, I think, part of the growth and maturation of DeFi is the increased number of people actively participating on chain through governance, either as voters, as service providers. And just being active in the communities, and not all of it's good. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of useless conversations happening, but I think it could be fairly attributed to Gauntlet in sense of truly starting the trend of beta DAO and building shit that protocols will pay for and use directly from the treasuries. I think an interesting fact
1: about this is like the narrative of DAOs in say the trough of DAO disillusionment, which was basically 2016 DAO hack to June 2020 compound DAO launching. Yeah, there were all these things. Amin would always find a new way to make a new DAO every few months and God bless him. He always somehow keeps himself (laughs) interested in doing this shit. I'm always (laughs) impressed given his crazy personality. But I think an interesting aspect is like the narrative was like, hey, you're going to have all these anons. They're going to vote and they're going to be individuals voting on decisions. And just as Greek was reformed by the Republic, there's not a real reason that DAO participants need to be one person. They could be a group that vote that is doing something collectively. And I think that was the thing that was always sort of a little bit in the pre sort of be to dao era, kind of something that people are like, no, no way. There's never going to be like professional groups working for DAOs. And then over time, people are like, oh, actually, I guess it makes sense. And I think that kind of is, one of those things where A, people, I think, assumed that the wisdom of crowds would always work in the sense of one of my favorite former coworkers' sayings is it's easy to pull a carriage with two horses, but can you pull a carriage with 1,024 chickens? And obviously, probably not. And so there's sort of a sense in which there's some trade off. And I think DAOs are sort of exploring that space. Another thing that's interesting is crypto was really at least the initial version of crypto. And part of the things that made me attracted to it as not being totally just this like money grab thing was that there was this notion of upholding privacy and believing in privacy. And I think what DAOs showed is actually that people actually want the opposite out of cryptocurrency. Not everyone, but a lot of people want the opposite they basically want DAOs to have vanity addresses and like have their on-chain history be like a grade, a score. Like think about the DGEN score when DeFi Summer happened. It was kind of this weird thing where we built this technology. It was supposed to give privacy. Ironically, it gave the opposite of privacy. And then people actually liked the fact that it did the opposite. If that makes sense.
0: It does make sense. And yeah, I think we're definitely in the middle of a transition of Thinking from DAOs and sort of wisdom of the crowds being always correct and desired to this is not necessarily how you want to operate and scale a protocol, regardless of what you're doing or what your focus is. And I think, yeah, like Alan certainly helped drive some of that discussion in the sense you guys are working on stuff that the average person is not going to just be able to come in and replace. And just like fill in seamlessly and for any DeFi protocol now there's obviously a lot of regulatory considerations involved but it's like how do we actually create impactful decisions and initiatives and parameter updates through governance how do we keep it active and a lot of the times it is through smaller more efficient working groups or sub DAOs or pods or, or whatever you want to call it so i don't know if there's like one one size fits all approach here but yeah, definitely something that I think a lot about.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that makes me optimistic long run about that is the following, which is if we think about the internet as like as if we moved to a new planet and we recreated society. We're currently in a serfdom. We started in sort of like anarchic world in the 90s. And slowly but surely, in order to increase the number of users in the system, we had to increase the convenience while also making it sort of this... Thing where the users are tilling the land of the server owning elite, just fine. I mean, that's just the way history evolved. Also, we had serfdom before. It's like I do sort of think the human condition makes it hard to avoid such things, but we can improve them and get new systems that are better when we realize we're stuck in such a thing. Because I don't think in 2006 when Facebook launched, Facebook was like, "Yeah, we're going to create the world's biggest internet serfdom and like make our users till the land." But that's what they did. They had a much more positive memo, but in hindsight, you can see that it was not that. Fine. So I think the interesting thing is serfdom ended with a bunch of revolutions, like the French revolution, like a bunch of different revolutions. And then we had the industrial revolution. Somewhere in the middle, we had the Dutch tulip mania, which was sort of enacted by the invention of the joint stock company. And the joint stock company which evolved to our modern day notion of corporation, was viewed as a scam at the end of the tulip bubble. And like, oh, it didn't work. Like, only attracted grifters, dot, 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 dot. But yet, if we look at the industrial evolution, the only reason it happened, the only reason we have railroads, and which was like, at that time, the hot thing to invest in, let's say, is because we actually figured out these kind of organizational things that ended up being more efficient. And in a lot of ways, there's this thing, that Ronald Coase, who's this economist who won the Nobel Prize. Coase theorem, theorem, exactly. About the notion of why do people actually work in firms? Like if they were strictly expected utility optimizing, shouldn't they just work on their own? And then companies are just groups of consultants who have to work together to maximize their utility as opposed to like actually having sort of like a common goal. And the key is that group dynamics, anytime you have a coalition that has to work together to a common goal, incurs transaction fees. So do individuals. But the individual transaction fees don't get any economies of scale. There's no notion of like, hey, if two people are using the same asset resource that you can reduce the sort of overall cost because you only have, you have to buy less resources. So there's always this trade-off between transaction fees and splitting them across all the users in a group and transaction costs in general. And the notion of like, hey, we want to each individually maximize our expected utility. And that trade-off leads to a certain size of group that's sort of optimal, given the set of transaction costs and the set of sort of utilities. And the transaction costs, when I say that, you might think, oh, I mean like paying a tax at the store, but it actually means like anything that like has some sort of cost. For instance, a legal department at a company, well, if you're a one person company, having the legal department is actually huge transaction cost. But if you're a ten thousand person company, the legal department actually is a almost a revenue creator because it of, makes you avoid losing money. So there's this kind of natural thing where like that's a cost, but it's not. You don't think of like having lawyers a transaction cost per se in sort of common parlance, but it is. And. The idea, Coase's idea was like, hey, if you give me all the utilities, you give me all the transaction costs, I can find a sort of natural nucleation size, like a size of an organization that is sustainable for this goal, given a high-level goal also. And those goals need not necessarily be strictly revenue-optimizing. But the interesting thing about DAOs in theory is that if DAOs succeed, it's because they lower the transaction costs so that you could have smaller nucleation size: smaller clusters of people do the same task and get to the same outcome. And I think that is the thing we should be working for towards, not necessarily this idea of like everyone is going to be an individual who is like constantly contributing to 5 million DAOs and doesn't sleep.
0: No, I think that's a really well said and well explained. And just so I understand and sort of repeat back to you what you're saying, it's almost like there's only so much expertise someone can have on given topic areas and every DAO needs subject matter experts in these specific areas. The point of lowering the barrier to entry and creating DAOs is that it's the sort of bucket of people that you can have as contributors that are qualified and good at these things is much bigger. And they don't necessarily have to be full-time employed. They don't necessarily have to be located in your city or in your country. So the costs and ease of finding these qualified, talented people to focus on these areas, it's just much easier. That knowledge is more scalable. Am I sort of framing that the right way? Yeah, for sure. I think that's one way of framing it. I think another way of framing it is
1: strictly this idea that one of the reasons you can't even do that in the normal world is effectively countries levy transaction costs on you. Whether it's Immigration costs, whether it's tax costs, and here the idea is like you basically have lowered transaction costs for joining. You have not lowered transaction costs for searching for finding talent. If anything, that maybe has gone up somewhat because there's so much noise. But in the long run, if you can solve both that problem, you can effectively get to this point of what you're talking about. I think that as like a practical and theoretical end goal of DAOs. Sort of should be, it's like mission statement. But somehow you generally, when you read about DAOs, you read
0: hyperbolic stories. (laughs) It's like democratize everything and one user, one vote. And sort of among all this background, how do you see Gauntlet evolving over the coming years? How do you see your role in these ecosystems sort of changing over time? Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe sort of there's a few areas now where you guys are really focused on and sort of that's the main thrust. I think
1: the set of parameter optimization problems in this space is strictly going up. That's the one thing that's up only, the number of parameters and protocols. And with more parameters come more problems. And I think in general, we will be here to really work on as many of those as possible, including things in NFTs, NFT marketplace optimization, including things in game design. I think once we're truly flushed out and the bottom of the trough of disillusionment in game, crypto gaming, I think we'll hit this point where it actually starts making sense when people are building games that are getting really good attraction and adoption. It will make a lot of sense to actually optimize those games the same way that Blizzard or Riot optimizes StarCraft or League of Legends. I don't really play
0: enough video games, but everyone in my work does. It's like balancing the metas and making patches. Exactly. For, like, for StarCraft, it's like making this power-up. less effective. So like the Terran player doesn't always win. Exactly. Tons of that type of stuff is going to exist.
1: But you need games that work first in the same way you need a DeFi that worked first before you need the parameter optimization. And our goal is to really cover that in whatever chain, whatever application where like we can actually really help improve and drive value on chain, which is measurable by the community and do that for any application. I think one other thing is a long-term goal of ours is to help work on mechanism design and improvements to mechanism le- mechanisms that are related to governance. One of the things I think that has been both a curse and a blessing for governance is that it's extremely slow. For some decisions, that's actually really good. It means that you really take a lot of time to iron out the concerns of everyone. And in some cases, it's very bad. And I think the number one case, which many people know about in crypto is, of course, the treasury diversification problem of, hey, we want to sell our treasury, mainly denominated in governance tokens, because we want to extend our runway, we want to have more insurance, dot, 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 some high-level objective. And yet, none of those can pass because the token holders are voting. That sale will cause their tokens to go down, and they all have this, like, oh, no, we can't get front-run by the DAO. And basically, the idea of having fast path governance, something where you can do things, parties in the DAO who have like proven value to the DAO are able to help accelerate things versus slow path governance, which is like, you really need to like make sure everyone is on board. Somehow, mechanisms for that, that can improve this space, I think is something we aspire to help build.
0: Makes a ton of sense. I think there's a few examples of this in action. Lido has some easy track proposals, which certain initiatives fall under. I know with Ave v3, which you guys are obviously working on, there's like the concept of risk admins and not every little parameter change has to necessarily go through governance. And I definitely think this is a huge opportunity and area to improve, just like making areas that can be slightly more automated Yeah, there's been interesting experiments to have truly automated parameters. And I think that is eventually, or I imagine you guys will go, but yeah, definitely not. If there is
1: a world where we can build protocols or build on-chain code that improves A, how well parameter updates can work, B, how much make them more autonomous, and C, make the updating process easier, we will 100% do it. And I think one thing that really, I think, the current set of people in governance probably don't quite remember. I would say this idea from a long time ago, really like 2002, but then sort of Vitalik covered it in 2014 of prediction markets for governance. Now, none of these things have ever totally worked, partially because it was hard to source liquidity for these things. It's hard for people to understand how to trade them, how to use them. But I think after the last year, there is sort of, an open space for a resurgence of these types of things, of prediction markets for governance decisions so that they can happen faster. The main one, the original one, was called Futarki. I think Vitalik had an implementation, didn't really work for a lot of reasons. But I think we're going to see a resurgence in these types of techniques and tools. And so that's sort of where I see a lot of the future of improvements to governance coming from.
0: Totally makes sense. My last question, sort of strictly about Gauntlet and governance is... For any other folks, any other founders, builders, I guess building products for DAOs, building things that they're trying to shape with a, with various protocols, Like, is there any advice you would give them? Any specific, let's say, mistakes or useful processes that you guys went through that you found really
1: great? I think one thing, in spite of every investor telling you not to do this, is don't be afraid of consulting like work. Even just because it, forces you to build towards a certain direction. I think in crypto, unlike in, say, Fortune 500 land, I don't think consulting is necessarily value destructive or at least value neutral to equity holders. So one of the problems, I think, and a lot of reasons investors have this hesitancy towards consultants, is that a lot of like data science, machine learning, AI companies over the last, call it 15 years, basically would raise a ton of money, and they would have a bunch of revenue. But the revenue was all consulting, and then it didn't scale, and then they didn't reach their valuation, whatever. And part of the reason for that is consulting in ML, it's you're given systems from a company. They might be in COBOL. They might be in whatever database they have. They might be on-prem. They might be in the cloud. They might be in whatever. And then you're supposed to build something that ingests their stuff and like you have to meet them at their level. You have to meet their technology at their level. I think in crypto it's actually quite different because we're so new and we're still building this stuff from scratch. If you are a technical team and you are working with want to work with some project and the work seems kind of custom or one off, I think sometimes that's actually better because it actually will give you some insights into things you want to build as a product. Because you're actually building it with your customer, which is very different than building it at meeting them where their stuff is, because you can have more of a say in like, hey, if you make this design decision, then this it will be easier to do X. And that's just not true in machine learning land. Like if I'm a machine learning startup, I go to sell to some big bank, it's not like the bank is like, oh yeah, we're going to use this new fancy cloud database that you're telling us to use because like your models run really fast on it. No, they're going to be like, fuck you. If you can't use our shit, get out of the door. I think in crypto, because of the ethos and the way of everything being open source works, it actually does kind of have this thing where like consulting isn't as bad. And that would be something I think I would say is like a lesson. It's not like, hey, fast path to launch a token, get a huge valuation and sell it. And what, like whatever nonsense we saw in the last two years, there's no doubt that that's, <laughs> but if you want to actually try to build something serious and you care about these products, and I actually would argue that, Consulting in crypto is much better than consulting in AI and data science for that reason. And that's kind of where I make the comparison because I think it ends up being kind of similar. I think that
0: makes a ton of sense. And it also goes back to the fact that at, at the end of the day, not all your customers are created equal. Realistically, whether you're working with DeFi protocols, NFT protocols, DAOs, like there's only so many that sort of you can go super deep with and they've like, have a lot of users, they have a lot of market fit. So it's better to go really deep with a handful and with them as opposed to just like spraying and praying and and optimizing for your next round necessarily in six to 12 months. At least that's the way I think about it. And if you make a bet on those key protocols that people are using and you think will be around, the next wave will look to those examples and build on top, use the same platform, use the same tools, going deeper. 100%.
1: That's why I generally think like investors who have not started companies in crypto, and maybe this is a segue to you wanting to talk about robot, but investors who have not started companies in crypto are kind of like bad at giving advice, (laughs) mainly because they're just like parroting advice from SaaS companies. And they don't even know it because they're like, oh, I work at Big Fund. And oh, well, the thing the main partner says all the time is like, don't do consulting. So I'm just going to parrot that to all my companies. And it's like, Okay, can you tell me why? And they're like, oh, well, it's not scalable. Okay, well, why? Once you dig into it, it's like, oh, okay, you're just parroting what someone else said. And I think that worked in traditional VC much better than crypto. And this is one of the reasons I think traditional VCs are dog shit at crypto, for the most part, (laughs) if we're being honest. Both in performance and in how they actually can do anything for their companies, is... Basically, they're just parroting advice. And in the SaaS and AI revolution of the last 10 years, which is like where a lot of the big returns came, and in e-commerce, but obviously only a few exited, basically, you could just rotate advice between different companies, and it would actually just be correct. And I just don't think that advice applies to crypto. Like this consulting thing is a great example of that, where it's like, actually it does, it can accrue to your product because you're building the product the same time your customer is building a product versus, yeah, this thing of like, you're trying to like adapt to their nonsense. And I think stuff like that is like these kind of lessons you only learn from being like a founder in the space. I feel like investors in the space don't really, for the most part, I mean, I'm not saying like, there are obviously exceptions. But I would say a lot of them don't kind of like get that this trad tech advice doesn't work as well. And I think the best investors in crypto are the ones who understand these kind of things where like something that was supposed to be good advice is actually bad advice or vice versa because of the nature of these markets.
0: Or they'll preface their advice with you probably shouldn't listen to what I'm saying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) at least that shows some level of self-effacement. Like it's like, okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. Look. You probably know better than me. And I remember when I first started my company, I was like, oh man, these guys must know all the shit I don't know. And then like over time, I was like, wait a minute, they're asking me for advice all the fucking time about crypto stuff. So it's actually the other way around, which is why I was like, wait, I should just be the investor that I want. And that's sort of what got me interested in investing
0: is like, man, if I know more than all my investors, then like something <laughs> is wrong with the world. Yeah, I guess that's a natural segue. Like I see robot everywhere. You guys are, Pretty active. What is robot? Could you talk about the history? Like who is it? What you guys focus on? So Robot Fund One was actually just Robert. And it basically started
1: in 2019. And Bain, who was one of the big investors in Compound, had a scout program. And so scout programs are where big venture capital firms usually do this thing where they are like, hey, we'll give our people who are in our portfolio in certain industries some money to invest in very early stage companies, stuff that maybe we couldn't invest in directly because of blah, 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 some fund mandate stuff or like size or politics, whatever. Then we'll split the carry with them, split the earnings with them. And so, you know, Robert did fund one. And then basically what happened was in 2020, there was around the time that like the balancer white paper came out. By the time we'd written... A couple papers on AMMs. I guess now probably the two most cited academic papers in DeFi. And I got like 14 investors on the same day asking me like, oh, like how is balancer better or worse than Uniswap? I messaged Hayden. I was like, how many investors have asked you a balancer today? He's like 13. I was like, wow, I had one more investor than you who asked me about balancer today. And then like the 15th person who came, I was like, wow, you're the 15th person today to ask me this. Are you kidding me? And he was like, actually, you know what? I shouldn't be asking. You should just be in deciding where to invest. And I was like, that's probably true. Long story short, this person, who is more or less Mike Novogratz, was like, why don't we do a scout fund, but we'll make it very crypto native. We're just going to be like investors. We're not going to have this like onerous. A lot of these scout funds have like a ton of onerous claims for the deployers. You can't use our name or like you have to use our name and say it's an investment from Sequoia or... Oh, like you only get carry on the first round. After that, it's all ours. There's just like lots of complications. And if I'm going to be honest, I bet you 90% of Silicon Valley founders get rugged in these arrangements. I think everyone thinks of the most famous one, I guess, which is Jason Calacanis finding Uber and getting a lot of money out of that. But I don't think venture funds are necessarily your best friends. I mean, in terms of negotiating these things, but Novogratz. Crypto people, again, this is one of the beauties of crypto. People are like, you know what? Let's cowboy and try. And so we're like, all right, so great. We have this fund. One of the other reasons for cowboying was so that we could actually use it in protocols. I was like, look, I'm only going to invest the stuff if I can use it in DeFi, if I can do stuff like that. And so I said, sure. And so then I went to let Robert from Compound, and I was like, hey, you ran a scout fund. Someone wants to give me a scout fund. And I convinced them to give me no shackles how much work was it? Do you think it's worth it? Or do you think it's distraction? Whatever. And he was like, first he's like, yeah, it's a lot of work. It's kind of annoying. And then he came back and he was like, wait, how few restrictions do we have? I was like, none. And he's like, wait, you want to do it together? Cause like, I think if two people. You didn't have to do all this shit of like writing tons of memos and having to like, go present to the process, LPs. Process, yeah. All this yeah. fucking process shit <laughs> that like, that's the stuff that's wasting your time. <laughs> that it's like, just up to you completely. And it's two people, so like hopefully the legal docs and stuff is less work. We should do it. And so then that's kind of how it started. And I think thanks to all our great LPs over the years, but that's kind of it. And most of the philosophy is like, how do you be the investor that you wanted when you started? And that's pretty much it. And I basically think like this industry is particularly interesting in that there are a lot of founders who are able to invest either individually or via funds and they're probably the most value accretive people on your cap table like these big funds especially the mega funds i think it's like very hard to say that they're like super value accretive and you can go survey companies and see that it is actually kind of interesting i think in the bull market a lot of funds expanded in a way that made it hard for them to really service look i don't blame anyone if there's just a million lps being like i want to just throwing money at your face like you as a venture capitalist I, are you an idiot? If you don't take it, probably. And so a lot of people were just like, oh, wow, people want to give us so much money. So we're just going to take it. And basically it turned the VC into a startup. And so then they have hypergrowth, and like, then they have all the problems of hyper growth. And I think for a lot of funds that were like, especially these ones that were like sub $50 million funds, and then raised a fund that's like 500 or a billion or something, they had a lot of trouble. It is just a lot. I mean, look, you worked in venture. Yeah. Tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah, just like exactly. a lot of stuff. I think like that means the advice companies are getting, the help they're getting is getting diluted. And I think that's why the founders in this space are actually like a very good source of advice and capital that is probably high the highest value. Obviously, I'm talking about my own book here. So like you, the listener, can please <laughs> call me a shit bag if you want. But I guess my point is, I do think that's like the kind of uniquely interesting thing about crypto. It reminds me a lot of finance in that way. Where in finance. A lot of like new funds are seeded by people's old bosses. And I think in some ways that there's a little bit of that here where like, except it's not, you weren't necessarily working together, which is kind of cool where mm-hmm. people are seeding stuff and you don't necessarily need the big funds early on. Obviously eventually you just a hundred percent do. Coming back to it, it's like, how do you be the investor that's actually A, understands the space, B, will pick up your 2 a.m. call when you have a hack and like none of your venture investors are picking up? And then C, just making sure that when you're negotiating term sheets, you have sort of someone who's effectively a neutral party. Like, yes, we invested, but we're not like big investors or like it's not our job, it's like more of our hobby. So, It's the idea of like, you have someone who has been in similar shoes, negotiated similar types of term sheets, deals, whatever, and can give you pretty candid, not biased advice versus like asking another professional investor. It means you're going to get pretty biased advice.
0: I know we're running a little short on time, so I'll sort of, there's a few other topics to chat quickly about. MEV is something you've, I think, written a lot about, spoken a lot about, and clearly think a lot about. There's been a lot more discussion, again, from my perspective in the last few months about protocols, whether they're L1s or apps internalizing this kind of thing, how to do it in a fair way, how it should be distributed. I don't think, by the way, this is something that people really understand. People are aware of it and sort of how it's relevant for lots of different protocols. But is this something you could summarize and like sort of share where you think the equilibrium state, where things will shake out? I think. Ethereum has committed itself to a
1: particular way of which MEV will be. So I guess maybe I'll start with my philosophical take, which is, I don't think it can be removed. I think it is just an inherent economic property of the fact that you have uncertainty from the internet of transaction latency. You have uncertainty of which parties you're dealing with. You have uncertainty of how they have to communicate with one another to get to consensus. And each of those uncertainties compounds and the premia you're paying to the extractor was effectively a premia that is sort of a risk premia that is inherent to those, these systems. And anyone who's like, oh, I'll do some fair ordering thing. It's like, okay, well, the fair ordering increases latency or increases cost somehow. There's no free lunch or decreases trust, like the chain link thing, which is like effectively semi permissioned. So I just like, don't buy this tenant that you can remove it. And I think that is just literally due to the fact that you're using these things that have inherent physical uncertainties, and any transaction in any financial instrument that has uncertainties has to have some risk premia. There's no fucking perpetual motion machine that will remove that for you. I'm sorry. That's just the laws of physics, but for financial instruments. So, okay. starting with that as sort of the thesis statement. Then the question is, how do you reduce MEV? Because the argument that you can reduce it and reduce it to be like as low as possible and in some sense, and this is one of the reasons I really love thinking about MEV and the research around it, is there's sort of some sense in which, in the same way that the notion of entropy in information theory tells you like the minimum number of bits of data that you need to represent something is X, there's sort of a sense in which, okay... If you agree with my posits that the uncertainties compounding are the things that cause MEV, then there's sort of some natural notion of the minimum number of bits to represent the risk premium, which also sort of should be something like the minimum price. There's sort of some natural minimum amount of MEV that can be extracted, and you can't extract less due to these uncertainties in the internet. If we take that as axiom number two, so axiom one, can't remove it. It's kind of like the laws of thermodynamics. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed, only transferred. So axiom one, can't remove it. Axiom two, there is, however, a minimum price. Okay, the question is, how far are we from that minimum? What is that minimum? And can we say anything about it? And that's where the reason I think MEV has some of the most intriguing pure math meets statistics meets computer science, theoretical computer science problems. I basically think because we don't have any theoretical framework for it, we can't actually even talk about how much of a reduction particular techniques give you. Instead, we have all the bluster of people who are like, oh, I, well, I wrote this code and it does this, so like, it must reduce MEV And it. It's not clear that you didn't just transfer it somewhere else in the system. Like someone else, some other part of the pipeline is extracting it, not this part. So I think the idea of building the information theory for MEV is this like compelling problem that will at least let us benchmark whether particular solutions actually reduce MEV and they're not just shoving it somewhere else. And I think when we think about it on a per-chain basis, Ethereum's chosen a particular direction. Solana's chosen a particular direction. And Cosmos has chosen many directions, as usual. I would say Ethereum's is the obviously most battle-tested, perhaps the most centralized in some ways. Solana's is the craziest, I mean, I think wildest ideas. I think Jito is doing some really crazy stuff and it's super cool, but it's like, wow, they want to have auctions for every function call. Forget about every block. It's going to be amazing if they pull it off because I think it may end up being like the most efficient thing ever for the auction. But yeah, it's a very complicated engineering problem. So really excited for them, but also know it's going to be hard. And I think Cosmos is a weird place because like people there are so philosophically like pitchfork, get off my land behaving that there's sort of a no truer Scotsman thing there. No one's MEV is more MEV than mine, (laughs) which sort of is a glib way of trying to say like, oh, well, no one should extract MEV on my chain except my validators, not your validators. And I think that's like kind of an interesting dynamic, which is like very different than E. In ETH land, it's like, hey, we want to actually do all this stuff like MEV smoothing and just give it to different validators and give it to all the ETH stakers. Which is, in my mind, actually not a bad idea. Obviously, there's like all these game theory mechanism problems with it. Why can't you have off-chain agreements and just like do the MEV off-chain and then basically fuck over any of the revenue sharing things? But needless to say, at least they're trying to go for the egalitarian thing. In Cosmos, it seems like it's just a free-for-all fight where everyone is like, MEV is there, but it should just only go to my validators, not your validators, get off my turf. And I think that's going to lead to some interesting architectural differences. And I think that may be one of the reasons I think Ethereum MEV extraction and Cosmos MEV extraction will be extremely different. And I think it will take very different groups to build out that technology, or very different philosophies on engineering and even like what is allowable extraction, where to extract, how to do auctions, stuff. Like, that. like there's just like, there's so much complexity in doing it in an app chain world that I think it will look very different from what we see
0: right now. would love to go deeper on, I think, MeV and, and, and some of that stuff, but I wanted to ask one last question. On the topic of Cosmos, are you spending time on it personally? It very much is at the intersection of some of your original interests around proof of stake and DeFi. The thesis, like it's a lot of these core ideas that you've been thinking about and building on for a while. I guess maybe I will say one
1: interesting thing is Cosmos oftentimes has the right idea, wrong rationale for doing it, which ends up leading to some issues. They were the first to figure out staking derivatives, yet the last to implement it. They really came up with the idea, but they didn't know whether it'd be secure or not, or didn't really think about analyzing it or spend a lot of time. Instead, people were just like, oh yeah, this is the thing we need. And a little bit of their usual bluster governance that's common in in Cosmos. I'll give you three vantage points. One from Gauntlet's perspective, one from Robot's perspective, and one from my personal sort of research perspective. So from Gauntlet's perspective, we actually are working with one Cosmos protocol right now, Agoric, who's doing stablecoin. And I would say Cosmos has a lot of problems for data ingestion, and seemingly no one has fixed it. And I think Actually, Luna dying was kind of bad for the data analysis piece because Terra was the only chain really funding indexing. And how do you make Dune, Nansen, Gauntlet indexing? And all of us who are doing tons of indexing, how do you do that in the app chain world? Because every app chain has a different schema. And there's not like a single thing of events that you're kind of ingesting. And how do you make the schemas consistent? How do you make it fast to query over? Like, There's a lot more problems in actually doing data analysis on Cosmos chain. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means it's hard. And so from our perspective, like that's the thing that's like kind of a bottleneck for an analytics type of work. But from robots perspective, we've invested a ton in the Cosmos ecosystem. And I think of the ones that are sort of public, we have Celestia, we invested in, I'll say we probably have done like eight to nine Cosmos
0: investments. And then, yeah, what's your personal perspective?
1: I think the MEV stuff there is actually quite fascinating. And however, I think this idea of categorizing MEV and figuring out the theory of MEV so that you can say a particular action changed MEV by X amount and there's a way of reasoning about what amount means is incredibly important for Cosmos. For ETH, I think it actually matters a lot less because you kind of have centralized the MEV in some ways. For Cosmos, it's like... How do I make apples to apples comparisons between MEV from app to app? And that's true in ETH too. MEV on a AMM and an MEV on liquidation are quite different. But I do have a notion of some note, like a very clear notion of profit there because I don't have to do these cross chain transactions. But in MEV and Cosmos using IBC, there's just going to be tons of things. Like if you think about osmosis, you're using IBC all the time. If you try to write out the equations for what the profit, expected profit is there. It's much more tricky. And I think that in and of itself says that if you're promising me some like proposer builder thing or whatever, you better be able to justify that it's actually reducing MEV and not just shoving it. Let's say the MEV is equally distributed between the source chain and the destination chain over IBC. And you say, hey, we did this hunky-dory new like." proposer separator thing on the destination chain and like, oh, hopefully it lowers MEV. Proposer separator, some threshold encryption, whatever. Choose your favorite buzzwords. And then what you find out is actually you not only pushed all the MEV and you've at least the same amount, you increased it. And there's lots of ways that can happen. And I think like people don't get these kind of counterintuitive things with MEV. Like our recent paper about things where MEV actually had like a positive impact on a social welfare level. So on the level of the average price executed for a bunch of trades went down with MEV, but one individual got a really bad price versus like everyone kind of gets a slightly worse price. The idea that there are these counterintuitive paradoxes just all rife throughout MEV, I think is quite important, which is why I I think the catch all term is going to fragment into different names for once we have a sort of theory and a way to really describe what it means to reduce it.
0: And when you say categorize it, do you mean like into good, neutral,
1: bad, or? There are many dimensions. So I think one is the sort of moral ethical one that people love fighting about, but haven't hired the right philosopher to define. Because every crypto person thinks they're a philosopher already. (laughs) The second though, is some notion of like how the profit distributes itself. And then the third is sort of some notion of like short and long range. And this is something we kind of cover in our paper, but we kind of define something and say we only cover short range. Long range is very hard. So long range is something like a time bandit attack where I do a bunch of MEV to cause a fork over many blocks. Like I buy up a bunch of blocks, block space, and can kind of cause these weird behaviors where I cause forks and things like that. They're a little bit complicated to describe, but roughly speaking, think of it as like, I can do something where I buy up a lot of transactions, a lot of block space, and I effectively cause a fork to be more favorable. And stuff like that, that's like fundamental to security, is very different than stuff like I just sandwiched you. It's almost like they should have two totally different names. But the meme is so strong and people get it. So it's like, I think we're stuck with everything just being a prefix of MEV long range m e v short range m e v good m e v
0: bad m e v it's like the original definition it just means a ton of different things now and people don't even agree on how to define it they're very they're happy to get angry about what <laughs> in spite of <laughs> I think that's just like something worth pointing out it's true and really appreciate you coming on today super interesting I think to hear you sort of go through gauntlet's history and how it evolved over time and I think has a lot of good lessons for folks building for and using DAOs and protocols today.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.